over the, the past few weeks, we've been thinking about the challenge of evangelism. The challenge of sharing the good news of Jesus, the gospel, with this world. And we started, to think, uh, started by thinking about what should motivate us in doing this. First of all, we thought about obedience. Because we love the Lord who commanded us to do this. Then secondly, compassion. Because we love the people who are in desperate need. Thirdly, we're thinking about conviction. Because we believe that Jesus is the only hope for this world. And then last week we were thinking about one of the crucial methods in doing this. From the example of Levi, we saw that following in Jesus' footsteps means we reach out to people. The people around us in genuine, caring relationships. But as we finish this short series, this morning I want to think briefly about the message that we're called to share. What are we supposed to share with this world? And that's so important because sometimes those who claim to share the gospel actually lose sight of it. We we can forget that it's about seeking a radical change in people's lives that sets them free. So we're going to read the last section of Luke chapter 5 this morning. We've been working our way through Luke chapter 5. So we're going to the last section, verse 33, down to verse 39. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is better. Last week we saw how Levi eh, held a great banquet for Jesus and how he invited all of his tax collecting friends along to introduce them to the one who had changed his life. And it seems it was on this occasion that this issue arose. Maybe it was as Jesus took another mouthful of that delicious food that, that Levi had so lovingly prepared for him. That someone said, "Eh, John's disciples, they often fast and pray. And so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Now maybe it sounds like a bit of an innocent observation at first. Fasting, going without food for a period of time was important in Judaism. The Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses said that people had to fast on the Day of Atonement once a year as an act of repentance. 
But fasting was also seen throughout the nation of Israel in times of distress or mourning or especially in repentance from sin. But the Pharisees, they went further than this. They fasted as a matter of rule on Mondays and Thursdays throughout the year. And the disciples of Jesus seemed to follow this tradition. So perhaps it was a natural question. If the Pharisees and the disciples of John fasted, why not the disciples of Jesus? But maybe this question wasn't quite so innocent as it maybe initially sounds. Maybe there was a bit of pride or self-righteousness in this observation. The Pharisees in particular, they were very proud of their fasting. Last week we mentioned Jesus' parable of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. Remember the, the Pharisee and the tax collector? When they got there, the Pharisee was eager to remind God that I fast twice a week. And I give a tenth of all I get. His fasting was something that he was proud of. It was like a badge of honour. That he wanted to make sure that God hadn't missed it. But some were keen not just to fast, but also to be seen to fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenged this attitude. He said, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show that the men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. When they fasted, they made sure they looked like they were starving. So that everyone would know that they were fasting. And everybody could admire them for their dedication. So fasting wasn't just a rule to observe before God. It was seen as how seriously committed you were to your religion. If you're really religious, you would fast. So maybe this person was in effect asking, Jesus, look how committed to God we are. Why are your disciples not as religious as us? Now today, lots of issues have changed. The world has changed in many ways. But I think this issue still remains. We still live in a society where people have strong religious traditions and rules that they keep in order to try to please God and earn their way to Him. So are we supposed to follow those traditions? Are we supposed to try and teach other people to follow all of those traditions? Is that what our message is supposed to be about? Are we in the business of trying to make people more religious? Well, not according to Jesus. He responded to this criticism in two parts. First of all, he said it wasn't the right time. Uh, Verse 34, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now, I know that there are always a few tears shed at weddings. Okay? I don't know if it's the the joy of getting rid of your kids or the joy of saying bye, bye to them, whichever. But weddings are supposed to be times of celebration, aren't they? And Jewish weddings in particular were filled with joy and festivity. They actually lasted, the wedding feast actually lasted for seven days. 
boy, I wouldn't like to pay for that one. And the guests of the bridegroom, of course, would not be allowed to fast or mourn during that celebration. To fast or mourn during that wedding feast would just be inappropriate. And in the Old Testament, God is described as a bridegroom. And it's a picture that emphasized God's love for the nation of Israel, his bride, even although his bride was unfaithful to him. So Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. But here, it's Jesus who is the bridegroom. And the New Testament church is his bride. And when Jesus welcomes his bride into heaven, there will be real rejoicing. Revelation 19 says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So it just be inappropriate for the disciples of Jesus to be fasting while he, the bridegroom, is with them. His coming to them, his presence among them is a cause for gladness and rejoicing. Not sadness and mourning. <coughs> now that's not to say there won't be sad times of sadness or mourning in God's kingdom. Of course there will be. Jesus, I think, points to his death here on the cross in verse 35 and says this. <coughs> Excuse me. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them in those days. They will fast. There will be times of sorrow and mourning in the lives of the fo- his followers. There will be times of repentance or especially seeking God's will. Fasting is an appropriate response at those times. As long as it's done genuinely and not for showing off in front of others. But Jesus' kingdom is not one that's supposed to be characterized by sadness and solemnity. Instead, it's one that's supposed to be characterized by joy and celebration. And singing. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said this. I've told you this. So that my joy. May be in you. And your joy. May be complete. The message that we're called to share. Is not one. That's supposed to fill people with sense of guilt. Or fear. Or even boredom. It's not a list of do's and don'ts that are designed to spoil people's fun or ruin their lives. Instead, our message is one of great joy. Remember when Jesus was born and the angel appeared to the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem? Do you remember what the message was? I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people today in the town of David. A saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And that's what we are called to proclaim to this world. That if we put our faith in Jesus, then we can experience real joy. Not this superficial happiness 
because everything in our life is just wonderful, that's obviously not what it's about. Neither is it about a forced smile on our face, even when we don't feel like it. You know, the the smile, Jesus loves you kind of idea. But what we're talking about here is about a deep, invincible joy. Because Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. And he is our saviour. And he has forgiven our sins. And he has committed himself to us. And he is present with us by his Holy Spirit. And he has promised never to leave us and never forsake, to, to forsake us. And no one and nothing can separate us from his love. And no one can, can snatch us out of his hand. And no matter what is happening, God is working in our lives for our good and for his glory. And we have a sure and certain hope. A future that's awaiting us when we're going to share in God's glory forever in heaven. So even in the darkest of days, even when we don't feel it, we have reason to rejoice. Because Jesus, the bridegroom, is here. And that's the message that we're going to share with the world. It's the good news of great joy. But there was another reason. Another reason why the disciples didn't follow the traditions of fasting. The Pharisees and and John's disciples, they were really concerned because these guys were not following their traditions. But for Jesus, that was the wrong reason to fast. It isn't good enough just to do things because it's a tradition. Or just because other people expect us to. That kind of tradition, Jesus said, was empty and meaningless. A different time Jesus quoted from Isaiah when he said this, They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus didn't come just to continue man-made traditions. He said he came to bring something brand new. And he emphasized this here in a three-part parable. First part, verse 36. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. doesn't make sense to destroy a new piece of clothing in order to repair an old piece of clothing. Because if you do, you'll have ruined your new clothes and... The, the patch will just stand out and not match the rest of the, of the old clothing. In the same way, Jesus did not come to patch up the hole and the weakness in the old covenant religious system. He didn't come to just bring a little bit of reform or improvement into Judaism. Instead, he came to bring something completely new. Jesus didn't come to patch up the old religious system, but he came to bring something new. That doesn't mean that Jesus came to rip up the Old Testament and throw it away. Of course that's not the case. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. 
The prophet Jeremiah had looked forward to this reality when he wrote about a new covenant, a new agreement between God and his people. And he said this in Jeremiah 31, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the new garment of righteousness that Jesus has provided for us through the cross. It's not a patched up old one. But it's a brand new relationship with God. With a brand new heart that beats for God. And a new righteousness given to us by God. By His amazing grace. And that's what we remember each Sunday morning, isn't it? When we take communion. When we take the cup. This is what Jesus said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So this is the message that we're called to share. We're not calling people to try and patch up their lives. Or fix up the holes in it. Or the messed up parts. Or even to sort out a little bit of their religion. Instead we're calling them to a brand new life with Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Our message is that because of Jesus, there is a new way to God. Not through religious practices, not through man-made traditions, and certainly not through our own efforts. But through simple faith in the one who laid down his life for us. Don't patch up the old, because Jesus came to bring something new. But also this new way to God, it can't be squeezed into the old religious frameworks. In the second part of this parable, Jesus said this, verse 37, 38. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now, I'm not an expert in wine, or wineskins, or anything like that. But old wineskins, they seemingly get hard and they get brittle. And so, if you pour new wine into them, and and the wine expands the wineskins, they'll just burst, they'll crack and they'll burst, and the wine will be lost. In the same way, the new way to God, this new covenant relationship with God, doesn't fit into the old religious systems. You can't take it and try and package it up in that old religion. It doesn't fit with what's already there. That's why today... We don't have all of the, the, the same trappings as the old covenant. 
We don't have a sacred building that's a holy place. We don't have a special order of priests wearing special robes or making sacrifices on a physical altar or a list of special days to keep or ceremonies to follow. All these things were part of the the old covenant. And all of them have been fulfilled in Christ. This is Paul. what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. A really important little, little section. Paul writes this, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Because all these things are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So if we have Christ, if we've trusted in Christ, if we are in Christ today, then we don't need to go back to any of all those old things. Instead, as a new community of people, We are invited into a new relationship with God with equal and unhindered access to God as our Father. Remember in in 1 Peter we are reading this amazing verse that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That's every single one of us who trusted in Jesus. A holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And so the message that we're called to share is not about the traditions and the ceremonies of religion. Even the religion of the Old Testament. It's not about to argue over which religious system is best or which denominal practices are are the most helpful. Instead, it's an invitation to become part of a new community of people who have a radically new, personal, intimate relationship with God through simple faith in Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus. And this is the gospel that we need to share with this world. But unfortunately, not everybody wants this this new way to God. In the last part of this parable, Jesus warned us, verse 39, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says the old is better. Initially when you read it, you think, well, what's all that about? I think it reflects just life so, so, so clearly. Because once you get used to something, it's hard to change, isn't it? We are by nature creatures of habit. We get stuck in our traditions and our customs. We find security in familiar routines and practices. One of the most obvious uh, examples of this is where we sit on a Sunday morning. Isn't it? Most of us sit in the same seat every Sunday morning. Or if not in the same seat, in the same area. Alice, if anybody sits in Alison's seat next Sunday, she'll have a hairy canary. 
We like, we like tradition, don't we? We like to be, it, it feels familiar, it feels safe. And so it's hard. It's hard for those who have, a, who have religion ingrained into their hearts and lives. It's hard for them to leave that behind and enter into a brand new way to God. It's tough for them. Even if it might be obvious to us, even if we might look and say, well, what we have is so much better. Sadly, many people will just say, no thanks. They'll say things like, well, this is the way I was brought up. Or this is just what I'm used to. Or I'll just keep my bit of religion and you can have yours. The old is better. And I think this verse just explains why sharing the gospel is just so difficult and so frustrating at times. Because we are calling people to a complete and radical turnabout in their way to approach God. We're not talking about just come to our church rather than your church or whatever it is. We're talking about a total transformation in the way to approach God. But it also emphasizes why we can't do it on our own. Why we can't do it in our own strength. Because we are talking about here, evangelism, sharing the gospel, is literally asking for blind eyes to be opened. For hard hearts to be softened. For lives to be transformed. And none of us, none of us have the strength and the power to do that on our own. That's why it's such such good news that we're not on our own in this. Look look at Jesus' promise. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. And you will be my witnesses. The gift of the Holy Spirit is to empower us for our mission in this world. So although it's difficult, although it's challenging, although sometimes it's overwhelming, we can accept this call to share the gospel with confidence. Because God is with us. And he will walk through us by his Spirit to bring people to saving faith in Christ. This is God's work. Salvation is of the Lord. And he wants to work through us. So this is the message that we're called to share. Not a religion that enslaves people in traditions and rules and obligations. But good news sets people free to experience the joy of sins forgiven and a personal intimate relationship with God now and forever through faith in Christ so the challenge is are we ready to accept are we ready to accept that call are we willing to say yes God here am I send me Are we willing to accept the call to share this glorious gospel with the people who desperately need to hear?